all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, CW2 helicopter pilot type, uh, United States Army, Vietnam 1969. I want to welcome you to Veterans Radio today. I'm really excited to talk to you about our guest, and that is um, a retired Major General, uh, Greg Martin. He's uh, going to be talking about his forthcoming book, Bipolar General, My Forever War with Mental Illness. This is a really uh, important topic to talk about. Uh, he's a 36-year veteran, uh, ended up having to uh, leave the military because of his uh, bipolar disorder. And it, so he's got some great stories, and I think it's really important that we, you know, we talk about these mental health issues. We've been doing this on Veterans Radio for years and years, uh, trying to offer alternatives, trying to offer positive uh, feedback on these stories, and to try to just help our fellow humans you know, there are so many people suffering from some sort of mental problems out there. And this is just another story that we can share with you that will hopefully give you some ideas of how, you you know, if you suffer from bipolar disorder or any of those things, manic depression, I think this guy is going to be able to help you with his story. But before we get into that, I want to make sure that we thank our sponsors because, well, we can't do this program without them, and we really do appreciate their support. So number one, of course, would be our Legal Help for Veterans, and they specialize in veteran disability claims. If you have a question about a VA claim, give them a call. Call Legal Help for Veterans at 800-693-4800, or you can go right to their website. That's LegalHelpForVeterans.com. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. For more information, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. You want to do business with the federal government or with many uh, corporations out there and they want to work with veteran-owned businesses, you better get certified. Uh, the Charles S. Kettle VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor. For more information, you can go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. Also, we've just picked up a brand new sponsor, and this is going to be the Veterans Lending Council. And the Veteran Lending Council helps veterans and realtors understand the ins and outs of VA home loans. Uh, you can find more information on their Facebook page. That's the Veteran Lending Council. Just go on to Facebook, type it in. And there's a lot of information, great information in there. And what they're trying to do is put together a program where they can certify realtors uh, to become, I guess you could say, to become experts on VA loans and the process that you have to go through. We also want to thank our local American Legion Post 46 out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, the Irwin Prescorn, and the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles, Chapter 310, for their continuing support. If you'd like to learn more about these organizations and the services that they offer, you can just go to veteransradio.net slash our sponsors. By the way, you could also become a sponsor. That would be really cool, wouldn't it? All right, so let's get right into our interview right now. And as I mentioned before, this is a retired Major General Greg Martin, and I had an opportunity to interview him earlier this week. So here we go, General Martin. So I want to welcome... Um, our guest today, and that is uh, retired Major General 
uh, Greg Martin, United States Army. He went to West Point. He went to Ranger and Airborne School. He was sent to MIT, where he received an additional two master's degrees and a Ph.D. I think it's a little bit of an overachiever. Oh, and then he went on, then he went on to earn two more master's degrees. Um, he had, uh, ultimately became a brigade commander in charge of more than 10,000 soldiers. Had a nickname named uh, Mad Martin, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. And then came the Iraq War. So um, I want to welcome Major General Retired Greg Martin to Veterans Radio. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Dale. I really appreciate you having me on. So tell me, how, how did you – I left out that you'd gone to West Point. So I guess that would be how you got into the military. What motivated you to, to go to the point? Well, I was kind of from a middle-class family, in, with, which emphasized a lot on education. And I was looking to get the most educational bang for the buck. And I was convinced that the service academies really had the best package deal with, you know, top-notch education, leadership, um, athletics, all on full scholarship from the government. And I had always wanted to serve in the military, you know, wasn't sure whether Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, but uh, West Point came through, offered me admission, and I said, sure, get the college degree, get all this education, plus get to serve in the Army for at least five years. So that's what led me to do it, and it was a great choice. I really um, enjoyed West Point, very challenging, a lot of great people, super education, um, wonderful instructors, and the challenge at every step, leadership, athletically, physically, militarily, as well as academically, were really, really good, and they took me to a new level. I can only imagine. So where did you go from West Point? Where were you first assigned to? Um, went to the different schools. The I went into the uh, Army Engineers as my branch. So I went to the Engineer Officer Basic Course, volunteered for Airborne Ranger School, and then got shipped off to Germany during the good old days of the Cold War in the late 70s, early 80s. And so I was a combat engineer, platoon leader in, in Germany. We defended the inner German border, um, you know, from the Soviet Union. Um, deja vu all over again now with Russia and <laughs> Ukraine. Um, but I worked my way up, platoon leader, company commander, company XO, et cetera, and fell in love with leading soldiers. I just loved being around the men. Um, hard, challenging, you know, often dangerous mission. And I just got into being the guy in charge and the leader. And as you can imagine, back in those days, a lot of what you did in a garrison army was when you weren't out training or up on the border was almost like a form of social work. And so I found a lot of my work was helping soldiers with pay problems, promotion delays, family issues, medical issues, et cetera, et cetera. And I, that, you know, if I used my rank and authority as a lieutenant or a captain to help the troops, then they would do anything for me. And so it worked really well. We had very cohesive platoons and companies. And I think we would have performed really well in combat if, if the balloon had gone up. And I just fell in love with it. And then um, the Army, in its infinite wisdom, they, they really are looking for officers who they think have high performance, high potential and um, for the future. And then they offered me graduate school. And so I said, yes, went to grad school, worked hard, did well. And then my career just started rolling forward with one good assignment after another, you know, staff jobs, teaching at West Point, 
um, battalion command, war college, then on to brigade command, where things really took a change as far as the bipolar. Uh, I can I can only imagine. What what did you study? I, your degrees are from MIT. What did you study there? Um, I first went in, and I, I the army sent me there to get one master's degree in civil engineering, okay. tied to my branch, and um, so I did. I I went to work on the civil engineering, and they had given me a two year window to do this, and I quickly figured out that I could get a second degree. And I found a field called technology policy, which combined economics, politics, management. Um, and and I, I got a second master's in technology policy. Then that opened my horizon to all sorts of other disciplines. And so then pretty soon I had professors saying, hey, Greg, why don't you pursue a PhD? Um, we think your work is really good. Um, we think you could do a PhD in this field. I'll be your advisor. I'll help you put your committee together, et cetera. And so I said yes to all of that. And then I asked the Army, I said, hey, these guys at MIT want me to stay and get a PhD. And they said, no way. You know, you have two years, that's it. You're coming back in the Army. I said, okay. Um, they also said that I could do it like long distance night school over the course of my next three-year assignment. And the Army said, okay, you can do that, but we're not going to cut you any slack in your job. You can do it at night, weekends, take vacation, whatever. So I did. I just chipped away at it over the next few years and was able to wrap it up and, um, you know, get the degree across the goal line. And uh, it was interesting. One of the things in the Army, the Army culture, is they like people who are smart and can figure things out and solve problems. But until you reach the rank of general officer, they don't want you to be, quote, over-educated or over-intellectual because they want you to be a muddy boots guy who can, you know, roll around in the mud and kick butt and get down and dirty and make things happen with, with the soldiers. So I had to really, after I got the PhD, I was, I was only a major. And for the next, until I made general, I had to be really extra hua. I had to, <laughs> I had to do double the number of push-ups, run faster, jump higher, do more pull-ups, be more of a field soldier to counteract the idea that I was too much of an academic officer or a nerd or an intellect. Mm -hmm. But then what's interesting is once you make general, it flips because the world of the general officer is thinking, strategy, policy, dealing with complex, ambiguous situations that there's no right answer for. So having a PhD at that level, where there's only a handful of army generals with PhDs, guys like Dave Petraeus, then you're suddenly lifted up into another category of talent. And so that was an interesting experience where then instead of kind of downplaying a PhD, you know, high level people were raising it up and praising it and saying, you know, bragging about me that, oh, Greg Martin has a PhD. Look how look what a smart army general we have. Um, so that was kind of interesting. I can I can only imagine I I. I was a warrant officer, so I had no command responsibility whatsoever. And I'm always amazed when I find out what we consider at our level, we you know called real live officers, RLOs, were you know what your job entailed, and you know so much so much more than than you know we ever realized. We just thought they'd just say you know go out there and do that, and oh okay fine we'll go out and do that. It was you know there's always a method to their madness. It seemed like. But as you progressed through your career, sir, you ended up um, 
as you said, once you made the general rank as, you know, much more in a leadership position, much more responsibility, but you were still hyperactive as far as enthusiasm and, you know, going above and beyond, it sounds like. With with these kind of, maybe we, this is where we can do a little transition into some of the um, symptoms of bipo- of the bipolar disorder that I wanted to talk about today. So did did... Did you notice or did anybody notice that you were, you know, just kind of continually overachieving? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have since, you know, I was diagnosed. Um, well, let me, let me back it up a little bit. A- as a kid, probably starting from teenage years, I had an overabundance of energy, enthusiasm, drive, happiness, positivity, And that just helped me. It made me a more productive, higher performing person, high school, all the way through West Point, through my years as a junior officer. But I didn't realize it until fairly recently in my own research that I actually had a um, a mental condition, not an illness, but a condition called hyperthymia. And hyperthymia is a continuous state of low level mania. It makes you better. It enhances and amplifies your natural talents. And if you have it, you're actually lucky because it makes you better, except that there is the downside risk that it is more likely that you will go into actual mania, actual depression, actual bipolar somewhere down the road, which is what happened to me. So I would say that I had this hyperthymia, hyperthymic personality as a baseline. And I kept over the course of the decades inching up towards actual mania, which is a serious mental condition that is, you know, that can really destroy you and plunge you into bipolar. Um, I probably started getting closer and closer in my 40s to actual mania and actual bipolar. And then, according to the VA and the Army Medical Board, when I went into brigade command in in Iraq in um, 2003, the intense stress of leading, you know, thousands of soldiers in combat, all the pressure, the stress, et cetera, that that was a trigger for what I had of a um, pre-existing genetic condition for bipolar. So there's, they, 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 they haven't yet identified a bipolar gene, but they believe that people who get bipolar have a genetic predisposition that is triggered by some traumatic, stressful event. And in my case, they tracked it to the war. So I clearly went manic in Iraq. Um, I, my energy levels were through the roof. My creativity was amazing. My drive was unbelievable. I didn't need hardly any sleep. Um, uh, and I was, I was anticipating, identifying, solving problems on the battlefield before anybody else even recognized there was a problem out there got tip-top ratings, had great morale, the brigade performed magnificently, um, and I was manic much of or most of the year in Iraq. I did have, I, I literally felt like I was Superman, and I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of hallucinated that I was Superman and could actually fly, up, lift up out of my body and see the battlefield from above. But when we, and that went on for about a year, did really well. The war went from, you know, an exhilarating, high intensity, armored combat attack for the first month, month and a half into, it then bogged down into counter guerrilla 
anti-terrorism, counter IED, nation building. It was it really bogged down into a 360 degree war, very dangerous ambushes, IEDs, rocket attacks. And it wasn't nearly as thrilling. It was much more of a grind. So my mood started coming down, but it was bouncing up and down, typical of bipolar. But when we redeployed back to Germany, I plunged into depression for about 10 months. And I reported it to the medical people during the post-deployment screening. But everybody just said, oh, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. But in fact, looking back from now, back at 2003, I went through my first full manic depressive cycle from Iraq to Germany. And over the next 11 years, out till 2014, my mood swings from significant mania to significant depression kept getting worse and worse. I'd swing into higher depression or, or higher mania, lower depression, higher, lower. It went on for 11 years until I went into what they call full-blown acute mania in 2014 when I was a two-star. And at that point, I went into a state of madness. I went manically insane. Um, I thought I was Superman. I thought I was God's apostle to the U.S. military. I was, uh, my energy levels were just out of control. I was going on take extreme risky behavior going on midnight bike rides all around Washington, D.C., where I was stationed, hallucinations that I was up above flying over Washington, over the monuments, um, thought I could achieve anything, um, thought I could cosmically integrate all of the national security programs, schools, war colleges, academies, think tanks, national security structure, that I could link it together all over the globe to achieve a uh, national, uh, international security architecture was trying to sell it to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, Congress. Um, I was going into, uh, I was at the, the president of National Defense University at the time in DC, biggest uh, educational school in the, all of DOD. And, um, you know, I would go in, in and out of classrooms and lectures and just take over and just start pontificating about, you know, what I was thinking, interrupting the professors, interrupting the speakers. What else did I do? I, I was, I could, I could go on extreme religiosity, um, speaking in tongues, praying continuously, pretty much out of control. And it become so erratic, disruptive that there were, you know, probably dozens, if not a hundred um, complaints about me by the staff, the faculty, the students that went up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who was my boss, senior officials at National Defense University. Um, they went to reporters and wrote really um, uh, scathing articles about me saying that I had gone crazy, which I had, I mean, which is true, and, you know, in an attempt to get me fired. And so finally, the chairman did some investigations and assessments and he decided in July of 2014 that he had to let me go both for my own health and protection for the good of the university and to protect, you know, his interests. So he had made, he made the decision he, and he called me to his office, said, Hey, Greg, you know, I had to report into him uh, 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. He said, Greg, I love you like a brother. Cause I had worked for him before. Great guy. He said, um, you've done an amazing job. I give you uh, an A plus 
I give you an A plus grade for your work. Nobody could have done what you did. Uh, you took the ball from the end zone into the red zone, but your time at NDU is over. You have until 5 p.m. today to resign or I fire you. Um, and oh, by the way, when you leave here, I want you to set up a mental health examination command directed at Walter Reed to go get checked out mentally because so many people think you have uh, mental health problems, emotional problems. And, um, and so then he said, so what do you think about all that? I said, thank you, sir. That's <laughs> wonderful. That's the best news I've had all week because I know that God put me in this job to work for you. God's taking me out. Now God's going to put me in an even bigger, better, more important job where I can do more good. So I'm perfectly good with it. Thank you. And I give him a great big hug. <laughs> I can only imagine his reaction to that. Because it, it, it sounds like I was in doing some research for the interview today. You know, you, you mentioned some unusual behaviors. And, and you were, I mean, you went from you know, not only the National Defense University, but you were also head of the um, uh, Army War College in Carlisle for for a while, and you did some unusual things there, it sounds like, you know, in, in trying to get your, uh, in, in I don't know what the term is, I guess. It's, it, the idea is it's, you know, the camaraderie that you seem to feel with your, you know, with your, your staff. And, I mean, you guys were, went swimming in some guy's pool and did some things that most of us at the lower level would not ever expect a general to do. Right. Yeah, it was pretty out of control. Um, um, yeah, so I started, I had always been kind of a wild man. And, you know, they nicknamed me Mad Martin. And I did things to build morale and esprit de corps, especially with, you know, my subordinates. And, um, and it, I, I came up in kind of a fun army in the 70s and the 80s. And a lot of my best leaders at the general officer rank were really fun guys who like to knock down some beers, who like to sing karaoke, who like to get out on the dance floor, who like to get a little wild and crazy. And, um, and so I picked up on that and kind of built on it. And then my mania fed that kind of fun, wild streak. And then the wild, fun streak and the reaction that I would get from it fed my mania. So it became kind of an upper spiral. So, um, and I really started getting, uh, like at Fort Leonard Wood when I was a commander, um, you know, one of the examples there was I was doing keg stands at one of the, it was at the military police ball where we would stand up on our head, do a headstand and drink beer out of a keg. And I mean, that's not a bad thing to do if you're like a lieutenant or, a, you know, a <laughs> or you're in your twenties <laughs> or, or you're a private, but as the two star base commander, that's not really appropriate behavior. And I probably I probably could have and would have been relieved if someone had taken a video of it and sent it in up to my four-star boss. Um, at Carlisle, um, you know, the one thing you noted, we had a new student reception and a, and a, a picnic and a dinner and everything. And then afterward, we were down, it was at night at the Tiki Bar, and a bunch of the special ops guys were like, hey, let's go in the pool. And of course, the pool was locked up. It was after hours. The MPs checked the pool. And um, next thing you know, a dozen of us climbed, we scaled the 10-foot fence, jumping around, swimming in the pool. And then one of them had the sense to say, hey, we better get out of here. We're going to get arrested by the MPs. And of course, I was the base commander. And so I'm breaking my own safety policy of swimming <laughs> in the pool after hours. So we got out of there, but we had a big, big laugh. 
And I, I did, you know, lot numbers of things like that that were, um, you know, really, they were designed to be fun, morale building, cohesion building activities. But in, you know, the truth of the matter is it was immature, unprofessional, foolish. And that had a lot to do with the bipolar disorder and my mania, where the mania drives you to take imprudent, stupid, and disastrous risk. I was going to ask about that because, I mean, it, you know, it, it seemed like, you know, you wanted all this community, you know, with your staff and so forth. And, you know, that there really was method to your madness, but the madness seemed to be escalating over time. Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the hallmarks of mania is you start getting crazier and crazier, less and less self-control, less self-discipline, greater risk-taking. Um, you think you're the smartest person in the world. You think you're invisible. You feel like you're Superman, that you know better than everybody else. If someone had told me, oh, don't go in the pool, I would have said, you just don't understand. I'm building morale with the new students. I'm doing cohesion. I'm building a team. These guys are special operations warriors. They want a leader who's willing to take risk and has some guts and isn't afraid to go over a fence and jump in a swimming pool. Um, and, and so I would have people who would, as I was doing these in each of these missions that I had leading these organizations as a general, my mission was quote transformation, which was the big buzz back, back then. I think it probably still is. Well, what does transformation mean? It means the department of defense and the, in the, in the army, they give you a bigger, more complicated mission, then they pull away funding and people, so they decrease your resources. And then you're supposed to magically transform your mission and your organization into a better outfit that does better, higher quality of work with less people, less money. That's what it is. It's it's magic. It's it's uh and, and so what you have to do is essentially go in and sort of tear the airplane apart or the helicopter, tear it apart, remodel it, rebuild it, redesign it as you're flying it, and you're getting inputs and outputs, only you have less. And and so the pressure on the leaders and the organizations is extreme. And that and then the re, the bureaucratic and the organizational and the leadership resistance to these changes is huge. But I was actually able to do it. I was like one of the few generals at the one and two star level that was consistently able to go from job to job and make these transformational changes and get A plus level reviews from the four stars. And a huge part of that was my mania. It was my bipolar. I, my mind was incredibly creative. Um, I was able to get things done. I was able to build coalitions, teams to basically you know, do internal bureaucratic warfare against those that resisted and get results. Um, and so, but the stress on me and the, um, the, uh, the internal pressure of trying to fight these battles exacerbated and made my mania and my bipolar significant way, way worse. It just, it got worse and worse. Uh, of course, I didn't know I had it. Remember, I right. got it in 2003 and it was unknown, undetected, undiagnosed for from, from 2003 to 2014. Nobody had any idea that I had bipolar disorder mm -hmm. until the end 
when General Dempsey suspected I had something wrong. But then that month, July 2014, I got three evaluations at Walter Reed, all said, you're perfectly fine, you're perfectly healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And it wasn't until four months later, after I had crashed into horrible, dysfunctional, hopeless um, depression, that the doctors were able to connect the dots and say, aha, we think you had mania before, now you clearly have depression, bipolar. And they diagnosed me. And then I was in a fight for my life for the next couple of years. I can I can only imagine. We're, we're, we are talking with retired Army Major General uh, Greg Martin here about his struggle with uh, bipolar disorder. And uh, I, I know this, that when, again, reading some things about you, that you had many commands that seemed to just, you know, one year you're here, one year you're there, one there you're there. And, and every place you're sent to, you're supposed to be changing the, the the environment and the the culture actually, and I, I was thinking back to when I was in the service, you know, fifty years ago now. But our commanding officers changed over every six months, hmm. and I, I, you know, I figured well, you know, they wanted to get command responsibility, from my understanding. But I had three COs in my in just my one year in Vietnam, and I was thinking of how that played on your minds of, you know. It, you're career oriented. You're, you know, you want to do your best job and then you suddenly crash because, you know, as you said, your mania is, you know, off the charts up above. And then I'm sure that your depressions probably were off the charts at the lower level. And then did those start becoming closer and closer to occurring more often? Yes, very much so. Um, like I mentioned in Iraq in 2003, I was mostly um, manic which is, you know, up, feeling great. And then when I went to Germany for the most of the next year, I was depressed for almost a year. And then they started, the, the highs went higher, the lows went lower, and they started coming closer together until sometimes I would even have what they call uh, rapid cycling, where I could wake up in the morning and I'd be depressed, go to work, a manic, somewhere during the workday, fall back into depression, spring back up into mania, go to bed. And it, it could it could change rapidly throughout the course of a day, which is really troubling. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. After I wrote my manuscript and I've written some of these articles um, in the last year or two, I've gone back and interviewed people who I worked with, you know, both seniors, peers, subordinates from the time I was a second lieutenant on and said, hey, you know, I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I think it probably struck me much earlier did you see anything? And everybody was very, very positive, but they did start saying, like when I when I was in my mid forties, like as a lieutenant colonel and then clearly as a colonel, they started really picking up on the mania that that I that they thought I really was losing it, risk taking, crazy, super energy. Um, they they also started picking up on paranoia, which is a form of psychosis, um, where you think and believe things are happening to you and people are doing and saying things that simply aren't true, but nobody can dispel you of this idea. So my psychosis started to grow. I started getting less trustful, more paranoid of people. Um, but one of the things that would happen, it really struck me at the army war college was, you know, you gave the example of the, um, the swimming pool incident and there were lots of singing and karaoke and dancing and other really high energy 
fun, manic activities. But what started happening at uh, Carlisle, and I think some of them were triggered um, by very hard decisions I had to make in terms of the organization and the management and the budget cuts. I started falling into longer, deeper depressions. And what I recall about it is I was disoriented, confused, indecisive, withdrawn, sometimes for days, weeks at a time. And some of my subordinates from the war college said, yeah, sir, it was really weird that, you know, you would be so high for a day or a few weeks and you, your energy was unbelievable. And then you were just like, you, you know, pretty much just sit in your office and didn't want to come out. And we couldn't get you to make decisions, you know, relatively straightforward decisions we couldn't get out of you. And those are hallmarks of depression because your brain literally is shutting down. It's the, you know, the electrochemical impulses and wiring and all that that makes a brain healthy and makes it decisive and makes decisions and functional. They just start going away and your brain starts shutting, shutting out. Whereas when you're manic, it does the opposite. It starts firing faster and faster, making more and more decisions. Um, and people clearly, clearly saw it. How about your family? You know, my wife wrote a really good piece in the, my manuscript for the book. And she said, you know, she met when I was a lieutenant. We met when, a long, long time ago. And one of the things that draw, drew her to me was my energy, drive, enthusiasm, fun, you know, all that. And that if you fast forward from when we met in 1980 till I was in the hospital in 2014, what was that, 34, 35 years, she said she felt like a, um, a frog in a pot of water where you put a low light on and it just slowly heats up imperceptibly and she felt nothing, saw nothing she didn't see really a pattern of craziness. It just seemed like more of the same um, in, in her mind until the very end when the chairman called me in. At the very end, I had gone so far over the top that she knew something was wrong then. And so all those events happened about the same time where she realized something was wrong. My kids realized something was wrong. General Dempsey realized it, my students, faculty, um, staff, all right. It, it all culminated during a period, I would say, of about um, April, May, June, July of 2014. And it was just incontrovertible at that point. And Dempsey got me out, he got me off the hop seat, mm -hmm. and he did exactly the right thing. I mean, I thank him for removing me because, I mean, who knows? I might have done something. I never broke UCMJ. I never did anything insubordinate. I never hurt anybody. I never had a fit and, you know, berated or screamed at people. I was just mad. And um, it could have gotten, it could have gone from bad to worse in a heartbeat. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, because also, you know, depression leads to thoughts of suicide. Right. And um, in reading your article, I was reading an article in Task and Purpose, um, today and it says that that was never really a, a, anything that entered your mind you know it's the suicidal piece is interesting there's active suicidal ideations which fortunately i never had and the va helped save me from that 
And then there's passive suicidal ideations, which I did have, you know, in a big way. And it's what drove the VA to hospitalize me back in March of 2016. And the difference is, once I went into the severe depression after NDU, I, you know, the depression, it's so terrible. You begin to believe that there's no hope. You're never going to get better. You're never going to get out of this hellish situation. And you begin to believe you'd be better off dead. And I definitely believe that. I believe I would be better off dead. My wife and family would be better off if I was dead. They could get the insurance money and go on their way with me out of the picture. And I'm never going to get better anyway. It's my life is horrible. It's over. And I'm 100% convinced. So then what starts happening is I started getting these paranoid delusions and hallucinations that people were out to get me. They were out to get me uh, arrested, put in jail, convicted, and that I had a, this scenario where I was going to be convicted, put in prison, and beaten, tortured, stabbed to death in prison. And that would go through my mind all the time. And I would be you know, lying face down on the prison concrete floor, stabbed to death in the back, gurgling to death, drowning in my own blood. But it wasn't a conscious plan to uh, actively kill myself. It was a quote unquote passive ideation that I was going to be killed. But it's just as brutal and terrifying in your own mind uh, to have that belief. Then we got, you know, once I retired from active duty, we had to move out of the military quarters. We moved to New Hampshire. And I would have these visualizations, ideations that I would be walking on the side of a road and this invisible force would grab me around the, the chest and throw me under the wheels of an 18-wheeler truck. Right. And I would be ripped to shreds and I would, I would visualize my head, my arms, my legs flying out to the side. And, you know, I, it happened every day over and over and over again. Or that I was in an 18 or I was in a car driving and the same invisible force would grab my hands on the wheel and drive me straight on into an 18 wheeler and I would get, you know, destroyed. Right. And, and so, I mean, there is no invisible force. The force that would do that is me to myself. And so when I finally got to the point where I went to the VA to get help, thanks to an army comrade, a buddy, a friend, a mentor, who, who just sort of stuck with me because I was afraid to go to the VA because I thought as soon as I showed up on a federal property, I would be arrested, convicted, go to jail and murdered. So I was afraid to go to the VA. And until I was able to break that delusion that there was no truth to this arrest, which is a separate little story, I finally did the direct confrontation with the people that I believed were going to do it. And I came to the conclusion that my mind was... I was wrong. But so I went to the VA and they were the first people who asked, you know, they always ask when you go to the hospital, are you suicidal? No. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hurt yourself? No. Do you want to hurt others? No. And then this one doctor at the VA said, do you have any morbid thoughts of death or dying yourself? <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, wow, you're the first person that ever asked me that. As a matter of fact, yes, I do. And he said, describe them. And I did. I told him what I just told you. And he said, okay, that's extremely serious because a passive suicidal ideation can instantaneously morph 
into an active ideation and then you can commit suicide. You can kill yourself. And so we said, I really would like you to stay with us and go to the inpatient facility. And so I did. I went, spent two weeks in the VA inpatient uh, hospital facility psych ward. And then they invited me to spend another month living in a dorm on the campus in the unlocked part of the hospital, but getting intensive psychiatric care for another month. So I actually spent six weeks living in a VA hospital, two locked up, four in a dorm. And that was the beginning of my upward progression. It still took me six more months before I finally got the right medication to stabilize and begin my path to recovery. But the VA was really the lifesaver for me. I yeah I think I think they're doing great as I mentioned before we're talking with retired Major General Greg Martin uh, suffers from uh, bipolar disorder among other things it seems like and um, I wanted to ask you about some of the treatments that that are out there that are available to people that that do suffer from bipolar I mean I teach at a local community college and I've had a couple of students. That I, of course, I didn't know until, uh, you know, maybe they didn't take their medication and then there would be some sort of episode. And so I, I was wondering what, what treatment did they do other than talk therapy and that type of thing? So the first thing is that if, if somebody, if we suspect someone has some kind of mental health disorder or you do yourself, th- thing number one is go get medical help. Um, there are lots of treatments out there that can be very effective, but people have to go get them and they have to um, acknowledge that they, that they need help or should get help and then accept the truth. But um, step number one would be um, go get medical help, see a doctor, get in with a psychiatrist. Many, you know, one in four people in the world have some sort of mental illness, one in four, um, which means, and they're afflicted with it. So almost virtually 100% are affected by some sort of mental health disorder. But um, go out, get help. Um, And the basis is getting biochemically stabilized. For me, the the key medication was lithium, which is a natural salt. I had been prescribed probably a dozen different medications prior to that, but none of them had any kind of a positive effect. And so I went two years in a fight for my life from the time I was diagnosed to the time I went to the VA. And finally, when the VA prescribed lithium, which is really like bringing in the heavy artillery, it stabilized my mood. I felt like my old self and all this happened within a week. So I had been two years in a fight for my life within a week of taking lithium. I felt like my old self again and really rebuilt the path to recovery. But, Medicine is, it's usually necessary, but it's not sufficient for recovery. To really recover, you've got to develop a foundation that involves people, you know, making connections, developing friendships, colleagues, family, but you need people in your life who can give you hope and help and inspiration. You also need to live somewhere, a place that is safe, that's secure, that makes you happy to be there, whether it's your house, your apartment, your neighborhood, your town. You have to live somewhere that makes you feel stable and secure. And then thirdly, people 
place, you really have to have a purpose and a meaning for your life that makes you want to get out of bed, that makes you feel happy and fulfilled and you have a mission. And so for me, the biochemical magic was lithium. And I take a couple other ones. But moving from New Hampshire, which I had seasonal affective disorder, so the cold, dark, gray winter wasn't good for my mind. So we moved to Florida, Cocoa Beach, bright, sunny, warm. It's made a world of difference. Um, I've, I've had, my family has stuck with me. I've had good army friends, but we really didn't have a good close network in New Hampshire just because of the nature of living in New Hampshire. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's cold, you don't go out, you don't see people as much, but the nature of Cocoa Beach is it's so much more of a community. It's so much easier to make friends. It's so much easier to have a network of happy, fun, healthy people that just, bring life and, you know, energy to my life. And then the third thing is the purpose is, you know, I had a a big purpose in the army for all those years, you know, 36 years active duty purpose was a given. And then I got down here. I'm like, well, what's my new purpose? And I, the only thing I could really come up with is, you know, the great commandment from Jesus, which is, you know, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is, you know, what, Christ said. So I started like trying to do that. Well, over time, it morphed into my bipolar story. I started telling people my story, speaking at church groups, rotary clubs, writing articles in the local paper, writing articles in, you know, national journals, writing the manuscript for a book. I mean, I've given over 50 talks. Um, I'm getting asked to speak at some very big prestigious um, gatherings. And so I've carved, I've sort of taken the great commandment and carved it into um, sharing my mission. My life mission is sharing my bipolar story to help stop the stigma and save lives. And so that's what I do. I mean, so when you sent me a note and said, hey, do you want to interview for Veterans Radio? Yes, because that's what I, I mean, this is what I do. And the feedback has been unbelievable. Thousands and thousands of responses to my articles and talks. And by all account, it's making a really positive difference, encouraging people and making their lives better. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's one of the things that, you know, so many of us have learned who have had some sort of mental, mental issues over time is to talk about it. You know, you have to talk about it. You have to get it out. And then you find out that people are, you know, are, are so willing to help you you know, with whatever your 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 problem happens to be, and I know that the VA, you know, has has been doing an excellent job, and there are all kinds of different therapies that are available now. And they're, you know, not only are they using medication, they're using meditation, they're using acupuncture, they're they're, you know, they're they're trying everything they can to help this, especially this generation of um, you know veterans, you know, with their crisis hotline and everything else out there. And I just want to uh, really. Thank you for what you are doing because it's such a good, again, you're leading by example. And I, when we started talking earlier on, I was thinking about, you know, everybody as at my level in the military always admired those that led from the front. You know, if, if, if my commanding officer of, you know, flying helicopters, if he never got into a helicopter, why would I believe him? And, you know, luckily mine would go out on missions with us and so forth. 
But that's what we need. And so we've got somebody, you know, a two-star general who is admitting to having a weakness. It's mental, but it's there. And you are willing to go out and stand in front of the world and go, hey, if this can happen to me, I don't want it to happen to you. And let's get rid of the stigma because I know that's what your your book is going to be about when it finally gets published. I know it's soon. And I, I, I just have to admire you for the strength that you're showing by doing that. Thanks, Dale. Um, okay. Um, I would like to just follow up on the recovery part because recovery is an ongoing, quote, forever war. And what I have to do now, remember, I, I really stabilized in 2016, but um, I've got to stay vigilant, very self-aware, very um, knowledgeable and sensitive to my own moods. My wife keeps an eye on me very closely. And then we triangulate and I talk to my VA psychotherapist, you know, talk therapy once a month. And she's very, very helpful. And then we actually occasionally make adjustments to my medication based on what's happening in my mood. And you've got to live a healthy life, you know, plenty of sleep, healthy diet, exercise, plenty of water, low stress, low agitation. Um, I've had to be really careful about um, curbing certain people or topics or activities that could send me back into mania. Um, and that's, that's an ongoing thing. I would say that um, some institutional things that have to be done are the military and society need to understand that mental illness and mental health disorders are real. They're not just a lack of character or willpower that someone is making up because they're weak. It's, you know, it's not the person's fault. It's just as real physiologically as cancer, heart disease, diabetes. And so you shouldn't blame the victim and say, oh, they're weak. They're just not trying hard enough. That's why they're depressed. Mm -hmm. It's real. Um, the second thing in, in the military in particular, in civilian society, we should take mental health just as seriously as we take physical health and physical fitness, because it's it's in the same category. It's just we don't understand it as well. Um, we understand being cardiovascularly fit much better than we do being mentally fit. So we need to put it in the same level of priority. And then, you know, there's no stigma for somebody with um, cancer diabetes, and neither should there be stigma for somebody with a mental health issue. Um, in fact, I think the model we should look to is women fighting and recovering from breast cancer, which is seen as a heroic cause. I mean, we hold women up who are fighting and battling breast cancer. You know, the NFL even wears pink shoes. Mm -hmm. And we should feel the same way about, about people battling, you know, mental illness. Um, then there's a whole bunch of other things kind of unique, largely to veterans. And it was the Vietnam generation that taught us about PTSD. And I think it was the Afghan Iraq vets who taught us about traumatic brain injury, moral injury, um, survivor's guilt. And all of these mental conditions, they interact in a very complex way with each other and can actually trigger depression, suicidality, bipolar disorder, and so we need to continue to do research and study to better understand and find the early markers and treat, you know, these these um, serious um, problems. 
Uh, I actually, you know, I absolutely agree with you on that. And, I, you know, we have to be aware of it. We have to be aware of our friends, um, you know, behaviors. I, I know I'm so many people that are active in the veteran community. You can see sometimes when people are having difficulty, let's put it that way. And, you know, you need to be there for them. And it sounds like that's what you are doing. And, and it's just a great I feel so good in talking with you, General Martin, that where can we get some more information from you? If my audience wanted to find out more about Greg Martin, where would they go? Um, I've got a pretty good website. It's www.generalgreg, with two Gs on the end, Martin. So General, G-R-E-G-G-M-A-R-T-I-N.com. And um, it's got, you know, most of my articles, many of my talks. It's got a blog site I do for the International Bipolar Foundation. It's got quite a bit of info on there. Well, I, I encourage our audience to go there because we all know we all know somebody who needs help. And maybe it's us or me. And it could be. You never know. But if I did, and I, I went to the site, and there, there are some great articles. There are a number of good interviews on there. And I want to, for all of us here at Veterans Radio, I want to thank you so much for being on our program and for helping us, you know, educate the public of what's going on and how they can help themselves. Amen. Dale, thank you. And you're doing a great job. I truly appreciate this. And, you know, even if there's just one person out there that our interview, our message touches, it's it's worth it because every person in their life is you know, infinitely valuable. So thank you so much, sir. All right. I'm really pleased with the way that that interview turned out. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I hope that you learned something. I think it's really important that we keep our eyes and ears open to our friends and family who may be suffering some sort of mental problem, and maybe we can you know, direct them in the right direction. As he said during the interview, to make sure you have to acknowledge it and you have to go and get help and assistance. So that's what we want you to do. We encourage you to, uh, you know, talk to your doctors, talk to your psychologists, talk to whoever it is, just talk to your friends. Uh, don't isolate yourself at home. Get out and about. The sun is coming out. It's finally going to be May. And maybe, maybe it's not going to snow anymore here in Michigan. So we, uh, again, we encourage you to uh, get out and about. Contact some friends you haven't been in touch with in a while, and I think you'll find that to be very beneficial for you. So, you know, we've been talking here on Veterans Radio. i got a, one announcement that I just got, and that is that here locally in Ann Arbor, there's going to be a Flag Day celebration on uh, June the 12th. Now, I know Flag Day is on the 14th, but uh, they're going to back it up a little bit, and it's going to be on a Sunday, uh, June 12th, and it's going to be at the VFW Hall here in Ann Arbor. That's a located at 3230 South Wagner Road. Uh, it's going to be open from 10 a.m. till uh, dusk, and there's going to be all kinds of events celebrating Flag Day. So there are going to be veterans, family fun day, picnic-like atmosphere with games for kids and adults, door prizes, and so, so much more. If you'd like to be involved or you want more details, uh, you can call Bob Bull at 734-664-7878. At 734-664-7878. Sounds like a great day. Uh, it's a great opportunity to go down to our local VFW hall and, uh, 
know, we've got a helicopter down there. They've got tanks. They've got all kinds of things and a great playground for children. So I encourage you to go and do that. So this is Dale Throneberry for Veterans Radio. Uh, Jim Falzon will be here next week, and then I'll be back following that. If you have any questions or concerns, you can go right to our website. That's veteransradio.net. Click on Contact Us. Send us your ideas, story ideas. We're looking for story ideas all the time. We want to tell the story of America's veterans. Uh, it doesn't make any difference what conflict that they were in. We want to get those stories out. And we've got a whole list and lineup of them for, you know, throughout the rest of this year. But we would be encouraging you to give us uh, a note and tell us who we need to talk to. So until next week, this is Dale Thronberry for Veterans Radio. You are dismissed. <laughs>